This week on Geek Explained, with Crisis on Infinite Earths concluding this week, and a new Superman and Lois Lane show on the horizon, we're taking a look at one of my favorite stories featuring comics' greatest couple. So join us for the latest Geek Explained spotlight on the miniseries Superman, Lois and Clark. Welcome back to Geek Explained, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is all about Superman and Lois Lane, DC's power couple. Really, I think comics power couple, personally, but that's just me. And more specifically, we're taking a look at one of my favorite stories that features both Superman and Lois Lane in the latest Geek Explained Spotlight. This is going to be on a miniseries that was all collected into one volume called Superman, Lois, and Clark. Also, big weekly review this week. It is the conclusion to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Worlds lived, worlds died, and nothing will ever be the same. We'll be talking about that, as well as, of course, this week's Comics Countdown. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, so we have actually like a lot of news to talk about this week. Um, Lots of stuff happened. I was kind of worried that January was going to be kind of slow when it came to news, but boy was I wrong, especially when it comes to this week. So we have our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. And we're going to start off with some comics news, Uh, specifically out of Marvel. They announced a new series that will be coming, I believe, in April called New Warriors. If you're familiar with that team, they were kind of Marvel's premier, like, younger team being led by uh, Nighthawk. So... I'm really excited about it. Apparently, it's also going to be spinning out of uh, the Outlawed storyline that's in Marvel Comics right now that includes the Kamala's Law. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Kamala's Law, basically that's something that's going to be hitting this spring, and it has to do with the next level of what I what I think a lot of people would refer to as the Superhuman Registration Act um, that started all the way back in Civil War. This is kind of like the next step where under Kamala's law, no person under the age of 21 can become a superhero. So that's huge. That's huge for ramifications for a lot of superheroes in the Marvel Universe, Uh, specifically the champions, which are going to be going, they're basically going to be an outlaw team. And the new warriors, just by the definition, the virtue of that team, are also going to be an outlaw team. So we have the first kind of press release summary of what the new warriors is, and it is as follows. 
In the wake of Outlawed and the implementation of Kamala's Law across the Marvel Universe this spring, which decrees no one under 21 can be a superhero, Night Thrasher has resurrected his old team with the goal of mentoring a new generation of heroes, whether they like it or not. Now, older and hopefully a little bit wiser, it's up to the new warriors to guide a brand new team of recruits 30 years after they began fighting for justice themselves. So I think that's really cool, uh, basically making them an illegal super team, finding their way through this new landscape. Sounds like a really cool idea, and I'm kind of ashamed that I called him Nighthawk, and it is actually Night Thrasher. So, um, but all all the uh, classic members of the New Warriors throughout all of their different rosters are there. Night Thrasher, I'm really excited to see Speedball again. He has gone through a lot in his life, especially when you take into account Civil War and everything that came after that. Uh, he was Penance for a really long time. Um, they seem to have kind of aged him down for this, so I'm not sure exactly where that puts him um but we'll see and it, from what i can tell they've also they're taking this time to introduce five new heroes into the marvel universe of course teenage heroes that will be uh mentored by the classic new warriors uh it's going to be written by daniel kibblesmith along with art by luciano uh vecchio i mispronounced your name and i apologize if that happened. But um, they're touting it as a great jumping on point for new fans while also giving you all kinds of callbacks to the original series. Um, this is really cool. So the core team, I'm just kind of looking through the, uh, what's it called? The uh, press release right now. So the core team that they have, the original team, is uh, consisting of Night Thrasher, Namorita, Firestar, Speedball, and Rage. That's going to be your top five. And then they're going to be accompanied by five more new characters that are going to be the teenaged versions. So I'm excited. This sounds really cool. Uh, the New Warriors has been kind of a a dead concept for a while ever since their involvement in the sparking of civil war so i think putting them in this kind of situation is really interesting i love uh luciano vecchio's art big fan of his and i'm really looking forward to seeing exactly what they do here so that is it for comics news heading into miscellaneous news we've got a couple of uh big video game news as well as uh some oscar news uh first off in video game news we got another teaser for uh the next arkham game coming from uh wb montreal they released uh over the weekend this essentially this pieced out uh logo they've been doing this for i want to say at least like six months where they're uh showing off these logos for what seems like the court of owls the league of assassins this latest one looks to be the uh i would say it looks more most like the crest for like uh, gcpd and it's of course released with the hashtag uh capture the night with night being like the dark night so i'm really getting I ah, I'm I'm getting hyped as well as getting kind of sick of these like random teases. I really just want them to announce the game. Um I would be totally okay with them releasing teases like that if they had made an official announcement like, "Hey, this is the game that's coming and we're going to be giving you teases about what it's about throughout the next year." I would be okay with that, but I just want them to announce this game. I'm just I 
I'm also hungry for Arkham content. I'm always a huge fan of the Arkham games, and I was actually a big fan of Arkham Origins when it came out, and this is going to be by the same team, so I'm hoping that we get an announcement at some point during this month would be preferred. And then some not-so-great video game news. Uh, the Marvel's Avengers game um, that's coming out from Crystal Dynamics has been delayed. It was originally slated to come out in April. It has now been delayed to, I believe, September 9th. So they put out a release on Twitter basically just telling everybody uh, we want to take the time to make sure that it is as perfect as possible so we're going to spend the time uh, fine-tuning it and tweaking it to make sure that the experience is best for everybody they're trying to make this uh, all at once a single player a multiplayer and a um, I think the wordage used was um, uh, content updating uh, experience for everyone so I'm okay with them delaying it for a while uh, as soon as Last of Us got bumped into right around that same time I think that they got worried and rightfully so because Last of Us Part 2 is a huge game and it would probably knock a lot of the um, a lot of the sales away from Marvel's Avengers in that immediate month which is what a lot of you know game development companies care about so um i think september is a great spot for it there's nothing really uh that i can think of off the top of my head that's coming out around that time so it's sad that we have to wait a little bit longer to get it but if that means that the game is going to be fine-tuned and perfected and it's going to be coming out at the best time for everybody which thinking about it now is going to be coming out at least right around if not directly after when uh, falcon and the winter soldier comes out I'm on board. I'm sold. So that is it for the video game news. Uh, wrapping up miscellaneous news, uh, we had the Oscar nomination announcements uh, this past weekend, and they were mighty interesting. I'm not going to go into all of them, but uh, Joker kind of swept the field, has the most nominations out of any film, which I think is interesting. Um, I don't know if I think it... I don't know if it should have... Uh, gotten as many nominations as it did um, for me if you checked out our uh, new year's special where i kind of did the year in review for 2019 it didn't make my top five films of the year but um, overall i thought it was a good film i just i um, i'm surprised that it got nominated for so many things while um, avengers endgame only got uh, nominated for one single Oscar and so many other films like The Farewell, like Us, um, really got the shaft. They got snubbed. And I'm surprised. I really, um, it's sad. But I'm really excited for 1917, which I saw uh, this past week and I absolutely freaking loved it. Um, if I had had, if I had seen it prior to the 2019 end review, it probably would have been in my top five, if not number one. So um, really loved it. I'm glad that it's being recognized. I'm just sad that a lot of other um, creators and a lot of other accomplishments aren't being uh, recognized. F for one example, um, all male uh, directing category, I think that sucks. I think that is not fair to directors like uh, Greta Gerwig um, 
And I think that it's a shame that we just, as a movie filmmaking community, and by we, I mean the Academy, of course, um, really haven't moved past this idea that to be successful, you have to be um, white. So uh, male and white, I will uh, will specify there. So I'm hoping that um, the 2021 Oscars are a bit more diverse, but I will definitely be uh, paying attention to the Oscars this year for sure. Moving on to film news. Got some big film news this week. Uh, First off, going to start off with the negative stuff. Uh, Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is coming in Phase 4, and unfortunately, it has lost its director. Scott Derrickson has dropped from the project, citing creative differences, and that sucks. That really sucks. This also comes around the same time as um, Kevin Feige doing an interview that, even though they had kind of already said that... Uh, Multiverse of Madness was going to lean a lot into uh, the horror aspect of Doctor Strange stories that the film that he kind of backtracked on it and said that the um, basically it's not going to be a horror film there will be scary elements but it's not going to be a horror film and I think that sucks I think the MCU and really comic book movies as a whole have been the most successful when they've been uh, genre films utilizing characters and settings from uh, comic book lore so uh, that sucks I think that it's a shame that Scott Derrickson isn't getting the opportunity to make the film that he wants so we'll just have to see who ends up picking up the slack and making uh, making the jump into the director's chair for Doctor Strange 2. Now for more positive stuff, uh, we got a couple trailers. So first off, I'll talk about, since we're talking about Marvel, um, Morbius, the living vampire, got a first look uh, at the end of this past week, as of this recording, and a full-on trailer on this past Monday, as of this recording, of course. And it looks good, Um it's very clearly by the same studio and same you know creative minds behind Venom. It feels very much like that. Again, a two thousand and I, I don't know why I'm picking this year specifically, but I'm just gonna say it. Um, it looks like a two thousand three comic book film, but um, I think that works for this character for a uh, vampire character. Jared Leto looks like he's doing Jared Leto things, which works for him. It works for this character. Uh, the effects look good. Um, but I didn't really, nothing really caught my eye or really, um, um, made me more interested in it until the final couple seconds of the trailer, because right at the end, when you think you know everything that's happening, um, Michael Morbius is walking down the alleyway and he is, um, I guess, uh, catcalled essentially by who else michael keaton is he the vulture is this in the mcu who knows there's a shot in the trailer where he's walking down an alleyway and you see a uh like a wall art of spider-man with the words murderer spray painted on it but it is not uh tom holland's spider-man that's in the picture it's a screenshot from spider-man 
PS4. Um, one of the loading screens specifically utilizing the Raimi suit, the Tobey Maguire suit. So who the frick knows what's going to happen with this. I'm not sure. We're going to have to wait until the film comes out. But um, the inclusion of Michael Keaton means that we don't know exactly what the status of this movie is and what exactly it's going to entail. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm interested. I'm going to watch it now. Um, I was going to watch it before, but now that we have that connection, I'm going to have to watch it for sure. So I'm interested. We're going to have to see what that, uh, really what comes of that. We also got a trailer for Birds of Prey. Or actually, what is what is the title? The Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. Um, I still... I still wish they had called this something else. Um, I think Gotham City Sirens makes more sense with the inclusion of um, Harley Quinn. But I will say with this trailer, we got uh, more of a focus on the entire team that's going to be utilized here. Black Canary, Huntress, uh, Cassandra Kane, Renee Montoya even. Um, it's definitely still the Margot Robbie, uh, Harley Quinn show. But I really liked what I saw here. The, uh, the trailer was very... Um, uh, it, it felt very French film to me. I don't know why. Kind of reminded me of like some of the uh, more quirky aspects of like an Amelie. Um, and it looks like they're really leaning hard into making this feel almost like an indie comic book film, which I like. I like that it feels different than other comic book films. Um, I like the direction that DC's going in right now with very uh, director-driven experiences. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, it looks really interesting. We finally got to see uh, Ewan McGregor's Roman Sionis putting his black mask on, and it looks great. It really, it looks great. I'm excited for it. Um, I'll be watching this for sure. We also got some news about the runtime, which makes me even more excited about this film because um, reports are saying right now that Birds of Prey is going to be right around uh, 90, no, it's like 95 to 100 minutes. So less than two hours. I don't know. I can't think of the last time that a superhero film was under two hours, but I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to this. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Should be good stuff. And that does it for the film news. Heading into our final category is TV news. And we got a lot to talk about. So first off, um, we're talking uh, DC news. Uh Actually, let's um, let's get the kind of not great stuff out of the way first. Um, so Hawkeye. Hawkeye is a Disney Plus series focused on the uh, Clint Barton, um, Jeremy Renner character post-Endgame and is also supposed to be introducing the new Hawkeye. But unfortunately, it looks like or rumor reported whatever uh this past week has said that i guess the uh filming or the production has been halted indefinitely at the at this time at current time of recording um if that gets updated i will definitely let you folks know about it but it 
it's unclear exactly what the reason is. Um, I know Jeremy Renner has been kind of in the hot seat for comments that he's made, all the stuff that's going on with the past relationship. Um, but who knows? Um, I think this sucks because uh, it's been heavily hinted that the Hawkeye series is going to be utilizing and adapting a lot from the uh, Matt Fraction Hawkeye run. So I'm hoping that the uh, production can continue soon, but we'll just have to see. And then also on the Disney side, the Disney Plus side, uh, Kenobi is the next uh, big Star Wars um, thing that they're developing right now. And rumor is, uh, rumor came out this past week that Jar Jar might be making an appearance in Kenobi. Fine. Fine. If that's what they want to do, fine. Um, there's also rumor that he might have a beard. Fine. If it serves the story, fine. But um, that makes me a little worried, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but yeah, so that's it for the Disney Plus news. Heading over to DC. Now some stuff I want to talk about. First off, Titans. DC Universe uh, is currently in development for Titans Season 3 for some reason. And in the past week, we have gotten not one, not two, but three separate characters teased for this upcoming season. That being Calderam Aqualad, Barbara Gordon Batgirl, as well as Roy Harper Arsenal. Um, rumor is right now that Roy's already been cast and that they're currently in the process of casting uh, Babs and Calder. But... I, I just, I don't know. I don't know, man. Um, I've started, I will say, I've started watching season two of Titans. It is not great. <laughs> um, I like, um, I like Deathstroke. I think his presentation so far has been really strong. Um, but they're repeating a lot of the same, uh, not just like the same... Uh, mistakes of season one but actually like some of the narrative of season one and that worries me a little bit so um i don't know i don't know what to feel but we'll see exactly what happens there um i think i'm on episode three or episode four of season two so we'll see what happens we'll see what happens um but i like roy i think he's a great character they name dropped him last season and uh we'll see we'll see and then finally, the most positive news, the one I'm really excited about, um, Christ, along with Christ's Son, Infinite Earths, the DC CW versus Magnum, Magnum Opus, uh, ending this week, we also have the news that all of the current DC TV shows have been uh, renewed. So we're talking Black Lightning, we're talking uh, Supergirl, we're talking Legends, we're talking Flash, we're talking Batwoman. So... Those five are currently uh, all renewed for another season. And then the ex most exciting news, the news that I'm really excited about, is that the, um, the new Superman and Lois Lane series that has been rumored for a while has been officially ordered for a full season. So we're at least getting one season of Superman and Lois. I'm excited about that. You know me. You know how much I love Superman. You know how much I like the Tyler Hoechlin Superman uh, character. I also, I like Bitsy Tulloch as Lois Lane. I'm still waiting for her to really, like, wow me. Um, but I, 
I really like what they've been doing what they've been doing with those characters. I like their dynamic and their chemistry and I'm looking forward to seeing kind of what their status quo is after Crisis. Do we put them on a different earth? Does everything kind of get reset to how it was and Crisis doesn't matter ultimately? Um You'll just have to wait until the weekly review segment later on in the podcast to find out. But um, I'm really excited about it, and I'm looking forward to seeing exactly what they do, and I think this is good news. I I think that the recent seasons for all the shows have been, um, at least for the shows that have been on for this particular season, have been some of the strongest work that they've ever put out. Uh, Legends newest season doesn't start until after the crossover but um i'm looking forward to it i'm really looking forward to seeing exactly what they do with it and overall i think the future of the dccw shows is uh it's looking pretty bright so that does it for all the news like i said a packed news segment and now we are going to head on over to the main course the entree if you will of the episode which is our latest geek explain spotlight on superman lois and clark So before we get into the actual discussion, can we just take a second and reflect and recognize how awesome that Superman theme is? <laughs> um, if you're unfamiliar with it, it is the theme music to Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman, which was a TV show in the 90s, which starred Dean Kane as Clark Kent Superman and Terry Hatcher as Lois Lane. Uh, this was the show that was going on when I was a little kid. It was one of... Uh, one of my first introductions to the character, I remember watching it uh, with my mom and my dad uh, when I was a very, very small child. But I just, I forgot how much that theme is just so indicative of what a good Superman theme is. My thing always comes down to when you're making a good Superman theme, has to have trumpets in it. Has to have trumpets. There's something inherently Superman about having trumpets in the song, and this just, it's a its a good theme. I forgot. Um, I haven't watched that show in a while, but it's, um, it's still, it's still good. That theme still holds up. So, Getting right into it, back to business. Uh, this is the latest Geek Explained Spotlight series. This is our series where we, once a month, take a look at a graphic novel or a mini series or an ongoing that 
I think is really awesome and absolutely worth talking about and taking time to focus on. Uh, this month, we're kind of in uh, reverence of Crisis on Infinite Earths, so I was looking for something to talk about that had multiversal implications. So I put up on Twitter, you can uh, give us a follow and check out polls just like that on uh, at Geeksplained Pod, that's at Geeksplained P O D, on Twitter and on Instagram as well. Uh, but I put a poll up on what you, my mighty fine listeners, would like to hear uh, hear me talk about, and it really kind of came down to uh, three options: that being Flashpoint, Multiversity, and this book that we will be talking about today. Um, I thought for sure because of how um, how quickly uh, it pulled ahead early on, I thought for sure that Multiversity was going to take it, but um, I was pleasantly surprised that this ended up winning the poll. So we are talking today about Superman, Lois, and Clark. This is a miniseries that was collected into a single volume as part of the uh, Road to Rebirth, and it was written by Dan Jurgens with art by Lee Weeks for the majority of the book. Um... This is one of my favorite Superman stories. It really, really is. But before we get into the story itself, I've got to give you a little bit of backstory because it is necessary for you to understand this story. And I am talking about a little series that came out right before this one did that kind of serves as the prologue to this story, which ultimately this story serves as a prologue to the Rebirth run by uh Tomasi and Gleason. Um, but I'm talking about the crossover event Convergence. Now, when a lot of people think about Convergence, when they hear about Convergence, they cringe. Because Convergence um, definitely was one of those comic book crossovers that has a lot of potential, but doesn't stick the landing. So the concept behind Convergence was that this um, extra-dimensional multiversal being called Telos served uh, his master Brainiac and was ordered to take the remnants of the destroyed multiverse, little pockets of each world that used to exist in this multiverse, and put them all on one world. So essentially, it was Secret Wars, but we're going to ignore that uh, because essentially one city was bottled up classic brainiac style and placed onto this planet that was totally not battle world but kind of really was battle world and telos basically said all right you guys are all going to fight each other until one uh one earth is left standing and that's the earth that i will spare and so what this ended up being was this big crossover event it was i believe five issues uh, by itself, along with just the most ridiculous amount of tie-in books, because the main book followed the uh, crew from the New 52 Earth 2 book. So all of the main characters there were kind of the main characters here, because pr just prior to Convergence, that book had ended with the destruction of Earth 2 and the refugees from that world making their way 
out, making their way off world and being kind of embroiled into this uh, into this conflict. While all of the tie-ins were the battles between all of the worlds, which was the much more interesting uh, story because you had stories, you had books where it was like classic Captain Marvel uh, Shazam went up against Gotham by Gaslight Batman. You had um, Red Sun Superman going up against classic Earth 2 Superman. So you had all of these great stories where it was almost i would say a celebration of all these different continuities that existed in the dc universe at one time or another and that was what it should have been based around uh the mainline convergence book ended up doing away with all of that kind of placing that to the side and focusing on the earth two characters and on telos as a character as well basically showing that he was tired of being brainiac's um devoted servant and wanted to break free of his control and it was uh, it was um it wasn't great it wasn't great the main selling point of this uh of this convergence story was all the conflicts between the um between the different worlds and the different continuities and the one book that i wanted to make sure because i mean there was at least at least a dozen different uh tie-in books showing off these conflicts all over the not battle world and the one that caught my eye immediately the one that i wanted to check out was superman of course because i am who i am but more importantly it was because this story told the story of superman pre-new 52 now the new 52 reboot kind of threw everything off when it came to all of the characters and their journeys post-Final Crisis, post-Blackest uh, Night, all that stuff. And we were heading into this area where uh, Superman and Lois were, you know, a married couple. And they were starting to think about, you know, what happens after the Final Crisis? What happens after everything has changed and you start to become less of a... Um, less of an infantryman and more of a general what happens there new 52 did away with all that resetting everybody turning the clock back making them all new and young and hip and whatever with tons of lines and armor but this story the superman tie-in the two issue superman tie-in um shows that the the post-crisis yet pre-New 52 world or city that uh, Telos took for his uh, not-secret wars was Gotham City. But for some reason, for whatever reason, uh, Batman was not part of this crossover because the hero that was trapped in Gotham at the time was Superman, who had become depowered during the year that they spent under this dome. Because once all the domes went up, all the superheroes lost all their, all their abilities while Telos collected his, uh, his cities. And uh, during that time, during that year, uh, Lois and Clark were trapped in Gotham and because superman was depowered they were able to conceive a child so the story opens up you know clark doesn't have powers but he's doing the batman vigilante thing uh and lois is pregnant with their child and the crossover ended up this uh 
this tie-in ended up pitting this Superman against the pseudo Justice League of the Flashpoint world. So it was essentially, you know, these two immediate next to each other continuities clashing, and I really dug that. But the end of the um, of that tie-in basically ended with the Thomas Wayne Batman, who was still a doctor, uh, delivering Lois and Clark's child, who they would name John. This kind of rolled directly into the end of the Convergence event, the main Convergence event, where this Superman, along with his Lois, um, pre-crisis Supergirl and pre-crisis Barry Allen, or Barry Allen who was directly in the midst of the original Crisis, as well as Parallax Hal Jordan went back into... uh, back in time in the multiverse and fought the anti-monitor during the original crisis on infinite earths defeating him and stopping the multiverse from being destroyed if that sounds confusing and if i've lost you i apologize but that is as clear and concise as i can make that story um so the big thing coming out of convergence was to essentially retcon crisis from the original crisis from happening so that all of the multiverse was still around and still available but it didn't really tell us what happened to these characters following that event this book does that for superman and lois so as we head into the actual story here now you've got some um some basis for what's going on uh we go we are going to turn the clock back to 2011 the birth of the new 52 and the very first book to come out of that initiative which was justice league um these this initial volume told the story of the first time that the new 52 justice league came together fought dark side and all that uh what this book does really really well is that while all of this is going on this battle that's going on with uh dark side you see off in the distance our superman the superman that we grew up with the post-crisis superman uh the superman who disappeared after fighting the anti-monitor at the end of convergence uh he was there He was there the whole time. He almost stepped in, but he didn't, and he allowed the Justice League of this new continuity to defeat Darkseid. And so what we come to find out is that because that story happens five years prior to the events of the New 52, uh, Superman and Lois have been there the whole time. So... It gets kind of shaky when it comes to timelines and stuff because technically Convergence happened uh, years after the New 52 got started. And yet when they went back, they were placed at the beginning of the New 52. It's it's confusing. But the big thing about this is that we now have Lois, uh, Clark, and their little baby John um, having to exist in a world that already has a Superman and already has a Lois Lane. And so they move into this uh, little farm in Northern California and adopt the pseudonyms of Clark and Lois White, naming themselves after, of course, their good friend Perry White, the editor of the Daily Planet. So 
What you come to find out is that they've been there since then. And that while all of the New 52 stuff was happening, they were there just kind of sitting on the sidelines making sure that everything was okay and didn't get out of hand. And my favorite, one of my favorite aspects of this is that you would think that they could leave well enough alone and be like, we're living on this earth now, we have a child to raise, we're going to take it slow, we're going to just try and live a normal life. But everyone, you know better. You know better when it comes to Clark Kent. Uh, Clark can't help himself, and he is basically for the last, you know, five, ten years has been doing this secret Superman gig where he is rescuing people from natural disasters, uh, fighting villains that kind of fly under the radar for the mainline Justice League, and all the while wearing this slick black and silver Superman suit that Lois has made for him. And I love it. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, Secret Superman is, I think, one of the best uh, stories, and it works as a really nice new origin story for him, because this is a Superman who's kind of been around the block. He's older. He has a beard here, which I think is great, uh, giving you serious uh, 90s Superman vibes, but even better, because he doesn't have a mullet. Um, Superman really works well here, because you see him not only... Uh, being Superman and rescuing people, saving the day, but having to do it without the public face of being Superman. Because at this point in time in the New 52, they already have a Superman that's running around. And at the time of this uh, of this story taking place, Superman had just been outed as Clark Kent by Lois Lane. So not only is he doing the secret Superman thing, but they're also now having to be like, oh, shit. My name is also Clark, but I'm Clark White, and Clark Kent just got outed as Superman. So, like, what does that mean for us, you know, now that his face is public out there and we're trying to keep a very low profile and have done so successfully for 10 years? So... It's a great story and a great concept. I really dig it. Um, if they wanted to go this route with um, other stories in the future, I would be absolutely about that. Um, I love the idea of Clark having to, once again, not just keep his identity secret, but also keep his powers, his abilities, his Superman persona a secret, which he's never really had to do before. So it's putting him in the situation where he's never been in, in a situation that we don't often see Superman being in another situation that they don't have to um they don't really have a precedence for at least this superman doesn't is he's raising a child at the same time him and lois are raising their 10 year old son john jonathan kent or i guess technically he's jonathan white at this point um which i love his full name is jonathan samuel kent or white which is the names of course of both uh clark and lois's fathers love that really really dig that and um he has no idea that he is from a different world he has no idea that his dad is superman so alongside with uh clark and lois kind of keeping the secret of superman from the world they also have to juggle that with raising a child and keeping that secret from him too so again it's just these new and fascinating situations that we've never seen these characters be in before and the three of them kind of learning to live semi-normal lives while also trying to figure out you know does john have powers i mean he was conceived when superman didn't have powers but um and that's 
you know, a plot point through this book is John starting to realize that he's different from everyone else and that he's going through very much what Clark went through when he was his age. Uh, Lois also has a great, great arc where she is um, having to publish all these books and all these news articles under the suit under the pseudonym of author x because this world already has a lois lane that is a very accomplished journalist and so lois who again i can't stress enough i love this older um this older wiser more uh I guess, um, experience take on both Lo- the Lois and Clark characters. Um, she has to figure out how to make her contributions to journalism and to um, that world while still retaining both her anonymity as well as Lois Lane's integrity. So overall, everybody's getting stuff to do. I really dig it. They're getting to learn stuff that they aren't really uh, familiar with and having to learn how to do those things while also flying under the radar just enough so that they don't attract the attention of the authorities as well as their New 52 counterparts. And that's one of the most interesting aspects of this. We never see either of them during uh, during this story in person, but the shadows the figurative shadows of the new 52 superman and the new 52 lois lane are large and they weigh heavy on the entire book you can feel it uh we we do get to see the new 52 batman uh running around and there's a there's a moment i believe it's issue three or issue four where uh clark is talking to lois and he's like i almost i almost talked to him today I almost talked to him today because like I miss having that interaction and having that trust and having that friendship. And I just I really dig this idea that he sees his old friend in this newer younger version and he really wants to rekindle that friendship but he knows that it would just complicate literally everything about everybody's lives to be like hey i know you already have a friend named superman i am also superman but not the superman you know i am an older superman and just all the stuff that would come out of that but i like how they have to kind of deal with this idea that in this world now there have been two there are two supermen and two lois lanes and having to deal with what that means for not just these new 52 versions but also for their uh pre new new 52 their post-crisis counterparts who have really kind of gotten into a rhythm they're learning how to just do stuff um it, I guess it helps that Clark grew a beard, um, but I really like the dynamic and how at any moment you feel like if something goes wrong for just a moment too long, Superman from the New 52 could show up and it would just throw everything into disarray. So there's tension. There is a palpable uh, nervousness whenever something bad happens because you're like, oh, I don't want to get I don't want them to uh, get found out, but I also want them to be able to uh, solve these situations. And no more uh, dangerous does a situation come up than the introduction of Blanc. Blanc is an interesting character. Um, 
because he is introduced in the story and literally is not seen again after this story, which I think is hilarious. And I think it's mostly probably having to do with the fact that he's kind of a New 52 ripoff of uh, Manchester Black because he's essentially the sadist who is a uh, performance artist with death. He loves um, making macabre art that involves killing tons of people and causing wanton destruction. And his power set is essentially uh, telepathy and telekinesis, which, like I said, is essentially a less cool, much less British version of Manchester Black, who I think is the superior character. And I think there is a reason that that character was chosen to be in the Tomasi Gleason run rather than this Blanc character. Um, but he is introduced and is an immediate threat because he recognizes that this um, this bearded, superpowered being has a lot of similarities to this world Superman, but he's not him. And the idea that he is wanting to find out more about him and when he does try to find more about him he sees glimpses into his mind of a wife and a son and he's like oh i'm gonna go pay them a visit and it's it's terrifying he is a truly uh, bone chilling villain even if he is kind of a less cool knockoff of an already established superman villain and i really like the use of him here and the fact that true to form uh in two i want to say two separate occasions uh clark has the opportunity and the means to kill blanc which you know in the grand scheme of things would solve a lot of his problems if he kills blanc here and now he's not going to be a problem because blanc once he figures out holy shit you're superman uh wants to blow the lid off of this uh off of this idea that there are two supermen and he wants to expose him so clark has to fight against the um kind of the impulse to permanently off this problem that could end up ruining his entire family's lives because of his moral code and that really strikes at the heart of superman's character and really what he represents what he stands for and the fact that even though blanc proves to be a formidable foe and really does a number on him on a couple different occasions um superman is able to defeat him without uh without killing him and i think that has a lot to do with this idea that yeah, the new 52 is new and edgy and, you know, exciting and darker and grittier. But this Superman, the Superman that is kind of in the starring role of this series, is your quintessential old-fashioned soups. He's the guy who was known as the Blue Boy Scout. He's the guy who will not under any circumstance allow killing someone he is someone who will do everything in his power to uphold the values that ma and pa can instilled in him as a child and i freaking love that this is classic superman this is the superman that i identify with this is the superman that i know and love this is the superman that i look to and the superman that i think about whenever i think of that character uh this is a superman that i think was represented really well you know for a couple examples uh with the tyler hoakland version of the character with the brandon routh version of the character the kingdom come version um you know we'll give it to him the 
he was Brandon Routh was not the bad part of Superman Returns, so I'm going to give it to him there. He he did a good job of Superman, but uh, this Superman also represents the old way of thinking as well as kind of looking at the New Fifty Two world objectively, like a lot of fans, myself included, kind of looked at the New Fifty Two when it was happening there's a couple different uh occasions where superman remarks to lois he's like god this world's so dark and so cynical and so angry and i just like i don't understand why they're like this there's you know quite a few flashbacks that chronicle their first years living in this new world and kind of adjusting and um there's one issue where they go to metropolis and they're like it doesn't look as new or as uh, clean as our metropolis. It's a lot edgier and a lot darker, and it's a tough thing to adjust to. So they kind of go on the journey that a lot of us went on when the New 52 first happened, where we're like, whoa, wait a second, what, what happened to the hope and the you know brightness of the DC universe? Because believe it or not, Believe it or not, DC Comics fans, there was a time when DC Comics was known for being hopeful. And that's really what this Superman represents. And I really like that. The Superman also comes with the uh, promise of continuity and the baggage of continuity. So whenever he meets a character, uh, you get to see that he takes into account the fact that he's met this person before, that he doesn't know if they're the same person, but that there's a certain familiarity along with there's a, along with a certain unfamiliarity. Uh, case in point, Hank Henshaw. Hank Henshaw is a prime uh, a prime player in this story. Uh, this story really kicks off with the crashing of the Excalibur, which. For those of you who are familiar with that character, was really what kicked off the events that would play into the death and the death and return of Superman. Hank Henshaw was this um, this Reed Richards analog, where he, his wife, her brother, and his best friend went up in a ship. You know what's going to happen. Cosmic rays hit the ship. But instead of everyone getting super cool powers, they all died really horribly. And Hank Henshaw kind of got the worst bit where he didn't get to die with all the people that he cared about. He had to suffer and live on. But his 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 consciousness uh, left his decaying body and was trapped within the datascape, within... Uh, the internet and technology and so through this after the death of superman he ended up becoming cyborg superman and so this is our superman the superman that lived through all of that seeing that oh there's a shuttle crashing what's it called excalibur fuck and so (laughs) you see you get to go into that and this really kind of represents the um the post-crisis pre-New 52 mindset and the mindset of a bunch of readers who went into the New 52 being like, okay, I know that name, I know what they've done, but are they who they say they are? Are they who I think they are? Or are they something new? And so I really like that aspect and it's an aspect that they carried through into the the following uh, Superman ongoing run. 
But this really, for me, was one of my favorite parts of the story because this touches on how much the New 52 changed what we all kind of got comfortable with when it came to the post-crisis pre-52 era when we're talking about you know right before the new 52 so many things had happened final crisis blackest night um dick grayson is batman wally west is the flash barry allen had just come back you know all of this stuff that was kind of set up to be like this is going to be the next era the new era of dc comics was kind of whisked away and we were given this whole new cast of characters with familiar names but unfamiliar personalities and unfamiliar personas so getting that aspect and getting to know like okay we're not crazy for feeling weird about the new 52 i thought was really cool i would have honestly loved if they had had this idea when the new 52 came out so we got you know 10 years or i guess technically since rebirth happened in 2016 um six years of while all this new 52 stuff is going on we would have our classic superman our entry point our eyes from the previous universe viewing everything in the same way that we did so i really dug that another thing i really dug john kent how can you not love john kent especially kid john kent a lot of things have been said mostly by me about uh, Brian Michael Bendis aging up John for no reason because he just wanted to put him in the Legion and rumor is he also wanted him to clash with Connor Kent. I, I can't put into words and I don't have enough time to tell you how the idea of, oh, we gotta have these two characters fight for the role of Superboy makes me really angry, but... We're going to set that to the side for now. Um, John Kent here is great because you get to see not just as a character, but as a plot point, which is really kind of what he is in this story. His character will get fleshed out a lot more in the following series. Um, but you get to see how Lois and Clark deal with raising Clark Kent, essentially. Clark has a couple moments where he's just like, I do not know how Ma and Pa did this because I don't know how to keep secrets from my child and how to raise a child who is half alien and doesn't know it. So his journey throughout kind of learning about oh, I'm different, oh, I'm starting to have abilities, oh, my parents are lying to me, oh, my dad's Superman, oh, we're from another Earth. And, like, it's a great journey that he goes on. Um, there's a great moment where he and Lois are uh, tied up in a in a shed that Inner Gang has set on fire. And the moment where, uh, you know, John reaches out, he breaks free of his... Uh, of his ropes and they're trying to exit but because the shed is on fire the door handle which is made of metal is just scalding hot lois tries to open it she gets burned and then john you see reach out this entire story up to this point you've been wondering does john have powers will he have powers will he not have powers you know i think there's an argument to be made that that could be just as compelling of a story with uh clark thinking that oh my kid might have powers just like me and i won't be so alone but he ends up being a completely normal human i think that would be a fascinating story to tell as well but when john reaches out 
to the door handle. He's like, oh, it's, it's not it's not so bad. And he just opens it up and it's like, oh shit, he has powers. Powers that his father has. And this guy now has an incredible life ahead of him. Um, there's a moment where he, after finding out he has abilities, he's like, oh, I'm going to fly. And he jumps off the porch and he just like face plants loved it and the final shot of the uh of the comic is clark basically giving him and telling him everything that he wanted to know and then also reaching into uh the storage box and handing him the cape to let him know hey uh i used to wear this it to me it represented hope and it represented that the idea that everything's going to be okay and i i'm giving this to you to let you know everything is going to be okay first of all teared up cried i love that uh but second of all you know john wraps the cape you know ties it around his neck and he's like i want to try again and he ends the comic and the series floating in front of his parents and his mom basically saying you were you've always been my super boy so i love that john kent again the amount of potential that this character has is just too much there's too much potential um especially at this stage and i think that comes a lot down to how he was represented in this book which of course comes down to the creative team dan jurgens is a name that is synonymous with superman um he has written superman he's drawn superman he was there during the death of superman probably the most contentious point of superman's entire history and dan jurgens has a love for the character that shows whenever he writes him so uh, he was the perfect person to bring back this perfect, you know, uh, older style uh, Superman. And putting this together, he was able to nab one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite artists in all of comics, that being Lee Weeks. We've seen a lot of Lee Weeks work recently on uh, Tom King's run of Batman. I would love him to do more. Um, he just he has such a way with telling stories uh and the way that he draws superman the way that he draws the power and yet the vulnerability of superman as a person really um gets to the core of who the character is there's a great uh issue of the titans rebirth series where this superman meets the wally west who is also pre-new 52 and they have this conversation they have a race i absolutely love it and it's all drawn by lee weeks and he has such a way with drawing superman that immediately evokes the classic idea of that character so the two of them work so well together this book is really it lives and dies by the writing and the art and just like i guess every comic does but the two of them coming together for this book really is perfect and it opens the door for the treatment that follows which is the uh the rebirth series uh by tomasi and gleason and i'll, I'll talk about this a little bit because i don't want to put too much time on it because it makes me sad um but this was the prelude into the rebirth era which saw the uh, death of the new 52 superman as well as the re-emergence of this superman becoming the superman proper in this world and um there was a lot of promise you know the stories that were told by not just tomasi and gleason but also um 
Dan Jurgens and Patrick Zercher over in Action Comics at the time really instilled in you this idea of like the classic Superman's back. He's back. He's going to, you know, he's going to save the day. That's what he does. And I miss that. I really miss that um, that feeling that you would get reading a Superman book. Uh, I think that's been lost a lot in recent years with Bendis's run. Um, I don't want to spend too, too much time being negative because I've made it very clear how I feel about Bendis's run on Superman. But um, this idea that the classic Superman is going to herald the rebirth of uh, hope in the DC Universe really, for me, kind of encapsulated the idea of rebirth as an event and as a soft reboot and as this idea that hey just like you know superman handing the cape to john dc comics was handing the cape to us and being like we're letting you know that everything's going to be okay and to see years on how that promise was kind of broken uh is sad um and to see where DC Comics is right now post the Rebirth era, um, kind of, uh, I would say, it doesn't exactly taint how amazing the story is because it is still incredible and I absolutely recommend you read it. But um, you have to kind of look at this as its own story and look at it as an isolated event. Of course, you can also group in the... Uh, the Tomasi Gleason run and the uh, Jurgens and Zercher run of Superman and Action Comics, respectively, uh, following this. But this was kind of prime Superman for me in the uh, 2010s. Uh, New 52 Superman had its ups and downs and had some great stories and also some really bad stories. But this was really where I felt like, okay, Superman's great again. And this is where Superman is going to start just taking off, taking flight, no pun intended. You know what? Pun intended. Um, and really start to lead the DC Universe into the next era. And um, it's sad that that's not exactly what happened. We did get a great couple years with uh, with the Rebirth run of Superman. And that all really starts with this series. So that kind of gives you... A crash course on this my review my analysis of the story um i love it it's one of my favorite superman stories of the past decade uh could be of all time i would have to really think about it um yeah i'd have to think about it if you'd like to hear me you know compile a list of my favorite superman stories feel free um i would love to do a definitive you know list on my best superman stories in the future so feel free to let me know if you'd like to see that um but yeah and i think that this story is important right now because of the lois and clark show that's going to be coming out from the cw um we don't know exactly where they're gonna end up what's gonna happen with them um in this upcoming series but if 
anything, I would love for them to take some cues from this series. Uh, we already saw that their baby boy, John, has been born, so there is definitely going to be some aspect of that. Uh, rumor has it there's also going to be some aspect of Super Sons, so we might see a Damian Wayne in that show. Would love that as well. But overall, I really like the idea of a Lois and Clark who are figuring their way through this uh, brave new world and having to not just uh, juggle superheroics and journalism with their you know day-to-day lives but also having having to jump or uh, having to juggle parenthood having to learn about that having to put them in problems they've never uh experienced before and i think that with a lot of um a lot of the complaints when it comes to Superman's character, oh, he's too powerful, he's overpowered, he's unrelatable. Uh, the way that you could get around that, even though I think those are completely invalid arguments, uh, the way that you could get around that is exactly what this story does by putting this ultra-powerful character in a very human situation. You know, having the ability to move mountains and shoot lasers from your eyes doesn't make you a good parent. And so having to learn how to do that Having to learn to, you know, not just be Superman, but also Clark Kent dad, Lois Lane mom, really puts a different spin on the Superman story and I think makes this one of the most interesting takes on Superman that has ever been. And if they take anything from the past couple years of Superman comics for that CW show, um, I think that this is definitely something they should look at and something that they should uh, pull from. Even directly, I would be okay with that. So um, that's it for this edition of Geeksplained Spotlight. Um, I love doing these. I love looking back at uh, graphic novels that I have read in the past and get to reread for these episodes. And especially with all of the uh, focus on Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, with the Superman show coming out, Superman and Lois, um, I think it's a great time to look back at these stories that really inspire us and really um, continue to remind us why we love comics. And speaking of Crisis on Infinite Earths... It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And this week, it is the conclusion to Crisis on Infinite Earths. Earths, Earths. So, um, we've been waiting for this for a few weeks now. Um, I think it's actually been like a whole month at this point. But uh, we finally got the final two uh, chapters for Crisis. So just like the previous Crisis review, I'm going to be taking these uh, by chapter. So we'll be reviewing uh, chapter four first, then chapter five, and then I'll give kind of like my final verdict on the on the uh, on the event as a whole. But to give a quick recap, um, just in case in the last month you have forgotten or 
unlike me, you didn't go back and rewatch the previous three chapters before diving into these final two. Um, basically, multiverse is ending. Anti-Monitor is destroying all these Earths. The heroes from across the multiverse were brought together by the Monitor and by Harbinger to defeat him and stop the destruction of the Earths. Came all the way down to the final Earth, that being Earth 1. Every other Earth was gone. Uh, the seven Paragons were gathered, that being uh, Supergirl, Superman, Man, Ryan Choi, Sarah Lance, Batwoman, Martian Manhunter, and Barry Allen. And um, they failed, essentially, <laughs> is where we uh, left off. The Anti-Monitor uh, possessed Harbinger, destroyed Earth-1, destroyed the Wave Rider, and all of the Paragons were shifted by Pariah to the vanishing point at the end of time and the universe and everything. And then at the last second, Superman from Earth-96 was uh, basically killed and replaced by Lex Luthor. So that pretty much takes us all the way up to where we are at currently. So let's go ahead and dive into chapter four, uh, the arrow portion of the crossover. So the episode opens up not where we left off, but 10,000 years ago. And here we get the origin of the monitor and on and we are on the planet Maltus, which is Marnovu's home planet. Uh, we get a little bit of um, information and a little bit of exposition, essentially, that we're talking about the origin of the oldest character in the, uh, the entire CW-verse at this point. But you find out that kind of like the... Um, Kind of like uh, other scientists in DC Comics past, uh, Marnovu was a scientist along with his wife Zanine who was trying to find the secrets of the universe, trying to basically uh, go through time and discover the birthplace of the universe. So his goal was to use this um, time pillar, which looks suspiciously like the center console of a TARDIS from Doctor Who, but uh, he used that to go back to the dawn of time, but because he was... Basically, he wasn't... Um, made up of the right cosmic-y, cosmic -y, uh, materials to go back and survive in the dawn of time, he ended up opening a crack in reality and slipping into the antimatter universe, and that birthed the anti-monitor. So, after we get this whole, uh, Backstory with the monitor, we jump back into present day, and everybody's at the vanishing point. We find out that though it's been just a few weeks for us as the viewer, for them, our paragons, our heroes, the last remaining heroes in the entire, I guess, nothingness at this point, the entire antimatter universe, um, it's been months, like, Months have passed. Barry, like, disappeared at, at some point. Ryan Choi has grown, like, this really, like, really exquisite beard. Like, I don't know if that's Osric Chow's, like, actual beard or if that was, like, a prosthetic. But um, it looks nice. It looks real nice. But uh, you kind of, we kind of catch up with all the Paragons more or less where we left them. They're all dejected. They're all defeated, dealing with the defeat of the... Uh, or the defeat by the Anti-Monitor, and everyone's dealing with it in different ways, like Kara is mourning, uh, Jean is meditating, 
uh, Kate is just training her ass off, and Ryan and Lex are putting their big brains into trying to get them out of the vanishing point. They're trying to escape so that they can go and continue their battle against the Anti-Monitor. So... What we find out is that Barry comes back. For him, it's only been a couple seconds since he left, but for them, months have passed. So Barry is exhausted. Uh, the Speed Force is just kind of like kicking him back. He tried to use the Speed Force to escape, and he was unsuccessful. And they realize that they're not going to be able to get out of there alone. And so that cuts to Purgatory, where Oliver Queen has, over these past few months, learned how to become the Spectre with the help of the former Spectre, Jim Corrigan. Uh, Oliver realizes that he needs to go back and save his friends if they're going to have any hope in defeating the Anti-Monitor. So he shows up at the Vanishing Point and lets everyone know, hey, yeah, Barry failed the first time, but he's on the right track like the speed force is the way that we're gonna get out of this This is the key to saving everyone so he lets everybody know that the anti-monitor is at the dawn of time trying to essentially make this change permanent because with the speed force still around and time being in flux anything could happen at this point but oliver tells everybody look we also need a backup plan because fighting him is not going to go well for us so he says that we need to have two teams one to go back and fight the anti-monitor and one to go back to the basically the dawn of time ten thousand years ago to maltis and stop the original monitor marnovu from becoming the monitor and waking up the or creating the anti-monitor in the first place so and I thought this was really interesting. Uh, Oliver basically using his Spectre powers unlocks Barry's potential. So this is, at this point now, from here on out, Barry's like at his peak. So I'm interested to see exactly where they, uh, where they go with that, if that means anything, I guess. So um, the two teams that they decide to go with uh, are going... Team A, let's say, is going to the dawn of time to fight the Anti-Monitor. That's going to be Sarah, Batwoman, Martian Manhunter, The Flash, and The Spectre. While Team B is going to go to Maltis to try to stop Marnovu from creating the Anti-Monitor in the first place. And that's going to be Supergirl, Lex Luthor, and Ryan Choi. So they all split up into the Speed Force. But as they're heading through the Speed Force, Barry is intercepted by the Anti-Monitor. Because the Anti-Monitor can apparently go into the speed force which i don't think there's a precedent for but whatever so uh barry is separated from everybody for some reason it seems like uh supergirl lex and ryan make it to their destination just fine we don't really know how but they just do and uh everybody else on the a team gets scattered throughout the uh speed force barry is talking to uh talking to Oliver or a fragment of Oliver now as the Spectre who basically puts him on a speed quest and he's like all right dude so I'm using all of my Spectre powers to hold everybody together and make sure they aren't ripped to pieces inside of the speed force but you have to go find them they're scattered throughout the speed force throughout basically our you know past adventures and our memories you need to go through the speed force and collect them so that we can all head back to the dawn of time so Barry's on a speed quest. He's basically doing a one-man Avengers Endgame. So he 
heads off and he initially starts in star labs and gives us probably i think the biggest cameo in all of the crossover all five uh some of them were really big i think if they had been able to get uh michael keaton as batman or um any of the uh current heroes that are going through the movies and stuff it would have been really big but here they picked probably the perfect person to have which is ezra miller's barry allen uh from the Zack snyder justice league film and this was oh man i uh i gotta tell you i wasn't prepared for this i stayed off of social media for the entire night because i wasn't going to be able to watch uh, crisis right when it aired so getting this cameo was super cool and i was worried when i first saw him that it was going to be like oh this is just like unused stock footage that they're messing with but no like ezra miller was really there in his flash costume interacting with barry and i loved it i thought this was great um it kind of reminded me of some of the stuff that I liked about Ezra Miller as the Flash, the two of them being very, uh, very different. Like, I still think personally, this is just my opinion, that uh, Ezra Miller should have played Wally West because his uh, Flash is much more suited to that, being, you know, more of a jokester Flash and all that stuff. But as we know as comics fans, Barry Allen has essentially, in live action, assimilated Wally West, and he is now... Uh, Barry Allen in name only so I was uh, I was surprised and I really I I enjoyed seeing the interactions between the two of them and I looked this up because it reminded me how uh, how large in scope the CW verse is and I mean it's harder to uh, get these these big like deep cut dc lore stuff fit into the dc movies because they're i mean you only get two hours with them and all the you know stuff that goes into making them and cutting for time and stuff but uh seeing this and seeing seeing the two of them interacting really reminded me that yeah like grant gustin as barry allen like he's been around he's been there for a while he knows about the multiverse time travel all of this and uh ezra miller's barry allen doesn't like he's still like year two maybe in his um in his career as the flash and i really liked that and i kind of wish that we had got we would get more and i mean it's still early on as of this record there's no like uh there's no plans for them to cross over again uh but in the future i would love to see uh grant kind of mentoring ezra's flash in the ways of like this is the multiverse this is time travel this is the speed force because Ezra Miller's Barry Allen didn't even know what the Speed Force was. He didn't know how he got there. Um, it was, it's never explained at any point. Um, they kind of have this interaction where they discover, like, oh, my God, like, you're Barry Allen, I'm Barry Allen. Hey, I like your suit. Uh, and then uh, Ezra Miller's Barry Allen just kind of fades away with the rest of the DCEU. Ooh, sick burn. Um, <laughs> no. But um, I thought it was really interesting, and I, I had to look this up because I... I had to know. Um, Ezra Miller is 27. Grant Gustin is 30. Uh, 
And I don't know why that blew my mind. Uh, maybe because I'm just like used to the CW verse being so separate from the DCEU, but uh, or the old DCEU, the worlds of DC, whatever. Uh, but I really dug this. I really liked the implications of this. Again, talking about the multiverse. If you remember years at this point, I mean, at least a year ago, I talked about uh, wanting to see, and I've been saying this for years, I've been wanting to see a multiversal approach taken when it comes to these shows and the DC films. Um, I remember talking to uh, my good brothers Jacob and Andrew, shout out to them, uh, who have guested on this podcast in various episodes, um, about me wanting to see when they were when the DCU was still kind of starting, they just cast Ezra Miller and all this stuff, that I wanted to treat this, treat Justice League, before Justice League came out, I wanted to treat this as an completely interconnected multiverse which it seems like is now a thing but i would have loved to see you know at a certain point grant and ezra swap places you know ezra miller is the flash for a season while grant gustin's flash is now in the justice league films and i granted i know that's never gonna happen but i this is one step closer to it and i really really dug this like i said it was a very short scene you know in the grand scheme of the of the entire crossover but a it was probably the one that had the most money attached to it and b it just the implications of it i thought was really really cool so barry continues on his way after uh after ezra barry disappears and we check in with team maltus so here we find out that along with uh replacing Superman on the team of Paragons using the Book of Destiny or his little like page that he stole from the Book of Destiny. Lex Luthor also gave himself some upgrades so he can fire blasts and I guess that's it really. That's all that's really shown. He says he's given himself some upgrades but that's really all all that we see. Uh, and he takes out Ryan and Kara before heading off to go uh, talk to Marnovu and when he gets there he tells him he warns him about basically what he's about to do uh, and there he has this killer line where he's like so you want to team up the brave and the bald and I just it's great it's just great uh, meanwhile, Kara and Ryan wake up, they go after uh, Lex, and they have this great conversation where Ryan is kind of asking, like, I don't know why I'm here, like, I'm not the, I don't know why I'm a paragon when I'm just a regular guy, and Kara, true to form, instills hope in him that he is the rightful owner of the paragon of uh, humanity, and I, I really dug this. A lot of... Um, one of the big strengths for this crossover, and I'll get into this a little bit later when I talk about the crossover as a whole, is these small character interactions, and I really, really liked what they did in these last two episodes when it comes to that. Uh, Kara then shows up and throws down with Lex, and of course, true to CW form, as we get to this big throwdown with uh, Kara and a now superpowered Lex, we cut to Ryan and Marnovu while the battle is happening in the background. And it's just, you know, I get it. It's a TV budget. We're trying to hold off for, you know, big battles later, but I would have liked to see some of this fight. But Ryan kind of fulfills his role as the Paragon of Humanity by convincing Marnovu not to 
go through with his experiment and basically halting the birth of the anti-monitor here so i liked this uh ryan is a great character and i'm hoping to see more of him as the uh, as the arrowverse continues or i guess the cw verse continues now that arrow's ending but meanwhile barry's going through his uh his his solo endgame speed quest and we find that all of our remaining paragons were scattered to moments throughout uh I want to say the CW's history, but really it's Arrow's history. Uh, Kate wakes up during uh, season three of Arrow when Oliver is meeting uh, Ray for the first time. Uh, Jean is hurtled back into the invasion crossover, the biggest crossover at that point, uh, with uh, basically with Oliver talking to Kara right before their big final battle. And what you kind of realize is that throughout this um, throughout this episode, true to form with it being technically an Arrow episode still, uh, the Speed Force has used the... basically used Oliver's memories to place these Paragons. Like, nobody shows up to like, oh, Batwoman Season 1, Episode 3. It's all of Oliver's memories. I'm smacking the mic here. But... Um, Barry initially thinks that he's been tossed back into the Elseworlds crossover, but he realizes that it's really the fragment of Oliver that is the Spectre who has been placed here. So he sees the scene that he wasn't there for in the original Elseworlds event where Oliver, after making his deal with the Monitor, shows up and uses his new special cosmic arrow to destroy the Book of Destiny. And when Barry kind of shows up and pulls Oliver aside, Oliver remembers everything and he reveals to Barry for the first time that he made this deal with uh, the Monitor to save him and Kara in exchange for his own life. And I loved this and I loved that it was Barry who uh, was the one who discovered this and I don't think it's ever really touched upon after this um, by the other characters but I, I just, I really dug that uh, Barry gets this moment with Oliver where Oliver's like, dude, of course I would save the two of you. Like, the two of you are just, are destined for great things and I will always sacrifice myself for the people I care about. And I, I really love that. Uh, the big, you know, Barry and uh, Oliver have kind of been the big two for the CW, the CW multiverse uh, for probably the longest time at this point and i just scenes like this remind you of why that is because they work so well together they work great individually but they work so well together and the chemistry that they have just really really works especially in this scene but the most tragic um placement that the uh speed force places sarah is in season three of arrow and if you don't pick up immediately on why that's sad. Season 3 of Arrow, the season 3 premiere specifically, is where Sarah died um, when she was killed by, I think it was, um, who was it? Uh, I think it was the League of Assassins. I can't remember for the life of me, I'm sorry. Um, but she was killed and... Um, at first, like, it's a scene in the original Arrow Bunker, which I love the throwback, uh, with Diggle and Earth One Laurel. And we heard 
uh, rumors going into the crossover initially that, oh, Earth One Laurel's going to come back. I guess this is how she came back. It's that, but it's just for the. It's weird. Um, but you find out that the dead body that that is season three Sarah is just laying on the slab is actually Sarah. She was placed back into her death bed essentially uh by the speed force and that's super messed up like that's super messed up uh but barry shows up wakes her up rescues her and subsequently rescues all of the other paragons so that they're able to get to the dawn of time and so they all show up uh barry is also able to collect uh kara ryan and lex and take them with him to the dawn of time because unfortunately team b's uh whole victory of ryan Choi convincing the monitor not to do his experiment um it meant nothing essentially and i hate to say that but basically it did because the anti-monitor explains even though this Marnovu chose not to, there is an infinite multiverse of Marnovus, and any one of them could have uh, potentially gone back and made the same mistake. So it didn't stop the anti-monitor the way that they wanted, and it is time for a big throwdown. Uh, Spectre... Spectre Oliver basically tells them that, hey, you guys gotta hold the line. We are gonna... Or I'm gonna ignite the spark and you guys gotta fan the flame. And so he basically goes off to confront the anti-monitor while the rest of the paragons face off against the uh, shadow demon army. And I have to spotlight this because I just it caught me off guard and I really really loved it. But you get that classic uh, CW, like, heroes running at the villains shot. And as I'm watching them, I'm looking and I'm like, wait a second. Like, yeah, they gave, you know, Lex an upgrade so that he can, you know, shoot blasts and everything. But what is Ryan doing? Like, running at the Shadow Demons. And there's a great shot where it's doing, you know, that classic, like, pan over the big battlefield. And Ryan is just jumping up in the air and, like, swinging his arms. He's just like, ah, I hate you! And I I died. I died. It was so funny. And I, I don't know if it was meant to be funny, but it absolutely was. It was so good. And just being able to hear Ryan just like flailing in the, in the air, like while everyone's kicking ass around him. Like, I don't even know if he was doing damage to these shadow demons. If they're like literally that weak that, uh, that Ryan Choi can just punch them and then they disappear. But I, I freaking I love that. I love that so much. Uh, meanwhile, Spectre and Antimonitor have this great little quiet moment, like, overlooking this war that's going on beneath them. And then they go into the biggest budget battle of the crossover up to this point. Like, we, um, we've seen, and I think there's, you know, an argument to be made that a big negative of crossovers and, uh, really the DCCW as a whole is that when it comes to, um powered folk super powered metahumans a lot of their battles that you know with a you know movie size budget or even an hbo budget they would be able to be like oh let's make these these climactic battles they just go straight into like the dragon ball z like beam struggles and that's really what this amounted to specter versus anti-monitor was just this giant beam struggle while like lava 
you know, flew up around them. It looked cool, like it really did, but when you strip away, like, the effects and the atmosphere, it's just, it's another beam struggle. And we got this earlier with the startup to the Kara and uh, Lex fight. So, if that that's, and I'll be talking about, you know, negatives for the crossover as a whole later on again, but um, that is something that I have to mention, just in the interest of fairness but it kind of gets swept under the rug because oliver hits this sick line where when uh the beam struggle is over and they're you know clashing the specter and the anti-monitor oliver straight up goes you have failed this universe and i oh man that was great like if you followed arrow from season one um and i'll admit i didn't come to arrow until probably halfway through season one um his big thing was you have failed this city and just having that callback it it was his you know and i am iron man moment so uh i really dug it they essentially you know they explode they have their final um uh, they have their final little strike against each other, and Oliver kind of like explodes into the singularity, and everybody of the Paragons use the scrap of the Book of Destiny to, you know, reignite a universe, basically. So the singularity, you know, restores the multi- or this universe, essentially. And then we get this really nice uh, quiet moment where Oliver is like laying in this crater. Barry and Sarah come to him and he, you know, says goodbye to them and kind of passes the torch to Barry and Sarah as the new gatekeepers of the CW verse. So that is chapter four. Uh, chapter five is the Legends of Tomorrow uh, part of the crossover. And it starts off in pretty uh spectacular fashion i'd say uh because it starts off rebooting everything uh kara kind of wakes up in national city finds that the world's been reset uh shows up to like a nobel peace prize thing and finds out that oh lex luthor is getting the nobel peace prize is this a scheme probably but everyone else is for some reason uh completely into this idea of Lex, so something has changed. Uh, you also find out that Lex and Lena are kind of a tag team, and they are the biggest supporters of Supergirl and the other uh, metahumans. And you find out that now in this rebooted universe, uh, the DEO is a subsidiary of Luthor Corp. So um, there are definitely changes, and there are changes that are going to be... Uh, uh, long-reaching when it comes to the ramifications of the storytelling and the universes as we go forward but it looks like everybody except the uh, paragons have always known that this was the regular universe nothing's changed for them only the paragons remember the previous multiverse and so um does that mean that lex remembers everything is this probably a scheme yeah, it's probably a scheme, but we can't dwell on that because the Weather Witch is attacking National City. And if for a moment you think to yourself like I did, wait a second, is that really the Weather Witch? Are there two Weather Witches across Earth-1 and Earth-38? No, there is one Earth-38. 
There's one Weather Witch, and there is one Earth now. Uh, we get a great little Marv Wolfman cameo, for those of you who don't know. He was the original writer of the Crisis on Infinite Earths um, uh, comic event. And we now have one Earth. Uh, just like the original uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, everything gets boiled down into one Earth. It's now a universe. And... Um, I was really surprised that they did it. I thought for a moment that they were going to basically be like, nope, all of that stuff doesn't matter, didn't happen. Everything is as it was before the crossover. So I'm glad that we got to uh, see this really have consequences. This story had ramifications, and we are going to have to deal with those consequences as we go forward. Uh, we do see in Central City... Uh, Pariah has now reverted back to Nash, and he has no memory. Uh, in Star City, Sarah uh, remembers everything. Ray does not. Uh, Ray Palmer, that is, when they run into each other again. And Jean Jones shows up, and he starts basically systematically going around and um, unlocking or, I guess, feeding memories into all of our heroes. So as we go forward, even though most of the world most of the earth won't know that there was a previous multiverse our heroes at least will so there is some continuity that gets pulled forward um nash there's this great moment that i don't think that they give enough time to and hopefully they will uh, as we go forward in uh in this season of the flash but everyone basically and i guess rightfully so blames nash for his part in awakening and freeing the anti-monitor from the antimatter universe so um i'm they gave it like a moment where like jean was like you son of a bitch and like went after him but um i'm hoping that that's a through line that we're going to get to see explored more as we go further into this season of the flash uh we have a whole another half for most of these shows so they had to uh set up some plot threads that we are going to have to revisit and talk about but none of that matters because right when everyone's thinking okay we're gonna figure this all out Bebo attacks. Bebo, because it's a Legends of Tomorrow episode, it had to have some Bebo. And a giant Bebo is rampaging through Central City. So what this amounts to and what I liked about this is that uh, this episode in itself is a different kind of crossover because what we see with a lot of these um a lot of these crossovers in recent years is that everyone kind of gets pulled into um into one universe for a specific uh goal or a specific conflict and all of them even though they have varying and different um uh what's it called varying in different tones and vibes and feels to their shows all kind of mesh into one specific mold that i guess the flash would be the closest to um but what i liked about this is that this really felt like everyone was getting getting pulled into an episode of legends of tomorrow so we get like weird stuff we get really human interactions which is something that uh legends has always done really well is the interpersonal relationships along with the kind of wacky off the wall uh concepts and humor so i really dug that uh, a couple different a couple um 
signifiers of this is A, the Bebo stuff. B, we also got a quick little scene where Mick is an established author under the name Rebecca, which I love. Uh, Mick's doing like a uh, book signing and when Bebo shows up and interrupts it, a giant, you know, building, tall as a building Bebo, uh, Mick reignites his hate for Bebo and goes after it. And what we kind of get to see in this conflict uh, is Sarah stepping up, stepping into that role that uh, that Oliver kind of previously had as that elder statesman, that general role. So I like that, and I'm sh- and it seems like that's going to be kind of her role going forward. Her and Barry are going to are going to share the uh, share the torch, as it were. But since Sarah was there for longer, she is going to be the one who carries the flag for a little bit, at least for now. Um, but after they figure out that, oh, Bebo's just a ruse by Sargon the Sorcerer, which I loved because it's dumb, and that's something that Legends of Tomorrow does really well. Uh, they show up, they defeat Sargon the Sorcerer, the Bebo illusion disappears, and they have a little post-Bebo celebration at the bunker, which I liked. And again, it's one of those uh, Legends of Tomorrow touches that we don't see a whole lot with uh, other shows or these crossovers. But Nash shows up and tells everyone, hey, threat's not over. I'm getting a big spike in uh, antimatter energy, and it's coming here. So as we find out, antimatter is still on the board and it is not over there is a new yet familiar threat but before we get to that we get this really really great scene between uh sarah and barry sitting in this park in star city where they're just kind of like taking a moment and it's one of those things and i've had uh issues with this in the past with big uh crossovers big um films like this where it's like they don't get a whole lot of time for more quiet moments. Um, we talked about uh, in the Rise of Skywalker uh, spoiler review. If you haven't checked that out, feel free to do so. I did it with uh, my good brother, uh, Jesse Pickering, who is the biggest Star Wars fan I know. That one of our big complaints was that there isn't a whole lot of time to sit down and breathe. Everything's just like, go, 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 go. And you get that a lot in these kind of big, bombastic uh, crossovers. And even, you know, previous crossovers have had this problem sometimes. But this one really took the time to give everyone like, hey, let's take some time, let's sit down, and let's just kind of take in all the shit that's been happening so barry and sarah kind of get this nice quiet conversation and we've never really seen them have much of a relationship so i liked that they are building a new one since they're now the elder statesmen and women of this uh of this universe so they get this quiet moment but it is interrupted by the shadow demons returning and what we find out is war's not done. We are continuing on. The anti-monitor is still alive and he is coming to this earth to destroy it. So it's on, basically. We're continuing on. I was kind of surprised because I figured, oh, chapter four is going to be the big final confrontation. Chapter five is going to be all about establishing this new universe. But they swerved me and they 
put both into this final chapter, which I liked and I dug. Uh, so it comes down to uh, Nash, Ray Palmer, and Ryan Choi on making kind of finding the solution to defeat the anti-monitor once for all and they decide that the best way to do this is using the microverse which ray affectionately called the atomverse at first but realizes that the microverse is a cooler name uh they decide that if they can use uh ray's shrinking technology to shrink the anti-monitor indefinitely into the microverse he'd be trapped there forever there's no way to get out of the microverse and even less so when you're constantly shrinking and being sent further and further into that microverse so they're sent to um to star labs in central city to kind of put this thing together meanwhile star city is under siege uh the anti-monitor returns and is using his army of shadow demons to basically wreak havoc on the entire earth uh including sending some after our uh shrink bomb team at star labs but we get this great great team up where uh mick and killer frost where by the way just as a side note like they mentioned like it's been a while since i've seen you and i thought about it and i'm like yeah it has like we kind of forget, at least I do, I kind of forget how separated the Legends are from everybody else. They weren't even in the previous crossover. So I, I don't know, I, that's one of the big benefits of big crossovers like this and extending this into five parts is that you get these character interactions that you kind of forget that you love. And I liked it. We got some fire and ice action fighting off these shadow demons and then Black Lightning shows up. So Black Lightning is now also on this earth in this universe. Um, and from what I can tell, uh, this is going to be the biggest shakeup for him because in his world on his universe earth 73 or 76 or whatever um all the superheroes are fictional including superman he makes this comment uh and i believe part three where he's like whoa wait a second so superman's real he's hinting at this idea and I, again i haven't gone back and watched black lightning but after seeing him in this crossover i am kind of on board for going back and watching the, uh, the previous couple seasons to catch up with his story so it's going to be a big change for him and I liked that and I liked that we had our little elemental trio uh, defending our science bros as the rest of the heroes show up in Star City to have their last stand against the Anti-Monitor uh, they get this great little moment where um, I guess it's not really a little moment, it's a big moment where Sarah kind of brings everybody together by saying you know for oliver everyone calls it out and they go into battle against the anti-monitor who turns giant and this was the moment where i looked at him looked at his design and i was like this is apocalypse like i and i realized that anti-monitor probably i can't say definitively that anti-monitor probably predates apocalypse and that we've seen this whole him uh changing his size becoming giant and everything but from the armor look to him his gray skin um to the fact that he can you know change his mass at will i was like this is exactly how apocalypse should have been so that's just a side side note for me and there's also a quick side note um really like the locales 
The two kind of main staging areas for this battle are Gardner Pier, Gardner Fox, and Perez Landing, George Perez, George Perez who illustrated the original uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. Again, just little things that really sell it. It's the little stuff that really uh, stands out for me. But everybody's fighting the Anti-Monitor. They complete the Shrink Bomb. Uh, there's a great little scene where Flash shows up and he like assembles it really quickly. And so he hands it off to uh, the Atom, to Ray, who flies it in just as Kara is about to essentially go on the suicide run against uh, the Anti-Monitor. Because Giant Anti-Monitor is holding uh, Superman and crushing him. Uh, another Dragon Ball reference. Uh, Saiyan Saga style where Vegeta turned into the Giant A, but he's crushing Goku. Uh, so Kara flies directly at him, and there was the briefest of moments. I knew it, it quickly went away, but there's the briefest of moments where I was like, holy shit, wait a second. Kara in the original Crisis on Infinite Earths died after having this final like throwdown with the Anti-Monitor who was taking out Superman. So there's this moment, and it's I believe it's intentional, where Kara's flying at the Anti-Monitor at like breakneck speed, and she is just going to plow into him with as much force as she can. But before she can do that, she's intercepted by uh, Ray, who shrinks Superman so that he can get out of the Anti-Monitor's grip and you know, hands off the, uh, the shrink bomb to Kara, giving one of the most just on the nose lines where he's like throw it like a girl and it's like yeah I, I get it i get it the cw has you know this uh precedent for having these cheesy lines but yikes but anyway so she throws the shrink bomb hits the anti-monitor he gets shrunk indefinitely into the microverse the anti-monitor is defeated and following this we kind of get to see the uh the effects of Crisis on Infinite Earths. What we what we kind of get to see are the long-standing consequences that we're going to have to uh, get used to as we go into this universe. Namely, uh, some big reality shifts uh, for Diggle, for uh, John Diggle and uh, Lila. Not only do they have their son, they also now have their daughter back. If you remember, Flashpoint... Uh, Barry's flashpoint shifted uh, Diggle's child from being their daughter Sarah to being uh, their son. And I I like this. I kind of like this, the, bringing the two of them together. Now uh, Diggle has both of his kids uh, and might be joined by Connor later. But I liked that. The other thing is uh, we get this quick moment where Superman's flying. Lois calls him to come home to check on their sons. Plural. So we're getting super sons. I'm wondering if it's going to be like, oh, it's like John and Connor. Or if it's going to be like John and Jason. Or like whatever. But we're getting super sons in this uh, Superman and Lois Lane show. So I'm excited about that. And then it kind of all wraps up with uh, this in memoriam that the president is doing. And I, she looked familiar, but I had to look her up again. Um, this lady has been in uh, Smallville as well as playing a doctor in Arrow a few seasons back. So she's gone a long way from being just a 
unnamed doctor to being the president of the United States. But she gives this address, kind of letting everyone know, hey, world almost ended, our heroes defended us, Oliver Queen died, the Green Arrow lives forever. And one of the minute details and something that I'm really excited for going forward is... uh, they show all of the superheroes kind of watching this address on TV and everyone's kind of grouped together in their in their people groups. And in Kara's group, it's her, her sister Alex, and also Kate. And I'm excited. Some of the best parts of these cross these past two crossovers have been the uh, Kara and Kate chemistry. And I think Batwoman really has been at her best in the crossovers, so I'm excited to get more of that. I'm excited to get more World's Finest, but what I'm even more excited for is after this uh, In Memoriam segment, we get the mirror version of the opening to uh, Chapter 1, where it started off with this uh, voiceover by the monitor basically saying, you know, in the beginning, you know, there was nothingness, and then talking about the birth of the multiverse and all that. But um, here, it's Oliver as the Spectre doing the voiceover talking about, in the end, you know, there was nothing, and then he talks about, you know, the igniting of not just this universe... But the multiverse. The multiverse lives, uh, unlike the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, they're basically, it looks like, smashing together uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths as well as Infinite Crisis. Um, the multi, you know, it consolidated all of the CW shows. However, there's still a multiverse out there. And it shows some previews to other Earths. Earth 2, the one that made me jump out of my seat, is Stargirl and the JSA. Uh, specifically the Stargirl that is going to be leading the uh, DC Universe show that's going to be, I guess, from what I've been reading, is going to be both on um, DC Universe as well as the CW. I don't know how that's going to work, but we'll find out, I'm sure. Uh, But I'm excited about that. I loved seeing this first look at them, uh, seeing characters like Dr. Midnight, like Sandman, or not Sandman, Our Man, uh, and I think I saw Wildcat as well. A female wildcat, the second wildcat that, again, reaches back into the uh, the original Crisis. Uh, really, really dug that. On Earth-12, we got Green Lantern. It's kind of unclear whether it's the original Green Lantern uh, film from the Ryan Reynolds one, because uh, Guggenheim and Berlanti were co-writers on that film. I am going to lean into it being the uh, the Earth that the new Green Lantern HBO Max show is going to be taking place on, since that is being spearheaded by Greg Berlanti. Um, but we'll just have to see. But I'm excited. I loved seeing that. Earth-19! This made me sad. It was Swamp Thing. Earth-19 is Swamp Thing, and even though the show has been cancelled, and they even make a dig at it in the, uh, in the voiceover, because... Uh, Oliver basically says, you know, worlds rose, and then it shows Swamp Thing's world, and they fell. And I was like, oh, man, that hit me. That hit me. But, um, so Swamp Thing is Earth-19. Earth-9 has been restored as the Titans Earth. Earth Earth-21 is Doom Patrol, which kind of explains the discrepancies between the Doom Patrol on uh on titans and then in their own show i'm glad i loved seeing the doom patrol again and then earth 96 the final shot was earth 96 once again however 
Uh, it is not quite the Kingdom Come universe now because it does show uh, Brandon Rath Superman, which I loved seeing. I'm glad we got to see him one more time before the end of this crossover. Uh, doing the classic Christopher Reeve uh, floating or flying in the atmosphere, giving the little wink to the camera and flying off. But eagle-eyed viewers may have noticed that his shield now didn't have the black. It had the good old yellow. So I am now shifting my uh, my personal designation of this from the Kingdom Come world to the All-Star universe. So I love that we got some resolution with him. It was great seeing that. And it's great to know that the multiverse is back. And then we come to our final scene, which is on Earth Prime. That's right. We're not on Earth 1 anymore. There might be a different Earth 1 now. But uh, Earth Prime is now where all of the CW shows are consolidated. That's where all of them exist. Uh, true to the promise that was made a year ago when crisis was announced uh on earth prime we're back at the star labs uh hangar research uh place way back from invasion and uh, they basically have set up a memorial for the green arrow they all kind of give their eulogies for him uh kara ignites a little uh, funeral pyre and i really like that and something that I had completely forgotten about was that this hangar was essentially shaped as the Hall of Justice. And it was even more so defined because Barry pulls the sheet off of this table and reveals that it is the Justice League round table with eight seats. One for The Flash, one for Supergirl, one for Martian Manhunter, one for Superman, one for Black Lightning, one for Batwoman, and one for White Canary. And they left a single empty chair. All of them had their logos, classic uh, JLA. Uh, one empty chair was left there with the green arrow symbol. I loved it. Our Justice League is formed. I'm actually really freaking happy with this Justice League lineup. This uh, seven individuals, Flash, Supergirl, uh, Martian Manhunter, Superman, Black Lightning, Batwoman, and White Canary. Really, really cool. Um, also, I mean, it's, I guess it doesn't technically have to be said, but I like the diversity here. I really like the diversity of this lineup. This is a great, great roster for the very first, technically the first Justice League in the CW-verse. And they even have a great little moment, great little tease at the end with Gleek the Monkey as they uh, play the Super Friends theme to show that maybe the Wonder Twins are on the way. So... That is it for Crisis. That is it for Chapter 5. I'm going to roll through my final verdict. This is going really long. This is a giant-sized uh, weekly review, just like the previous uh, Crisis. But final verdict. Best crossover ever. Period. It really... I was surprised. It stuck the landing. Did some great stuff. I'm going to rattle off some pros here, some positives. Uh, the cameos. All the cameos were great, from the Ezra Miller cameo uh, to the Titans cameo, the Burt Ward cameo, the uh, Birds of Prey cameo. I loved just seeing all the cameos. The Ezra Miller one was probably the most surprising, but I really dug it. Uh, they also put a big focus on oliver's legacy he was the first superhero in this world um which i guess technically now that they've said that in this 
new Prime Earth means he predates Superman? Weird? Uh, but I think that was more of a meta commentary than anything. But uh, really liked that. I also really liked, and I touched on this earlier, how each chapter had a distinct vibe and feel. Every chapter kind of represented the vibe and feel of its respective uh show that it was on chapter one felt like a supergirl show or a supergirl episode chapter three felt like a flash episode and like we said earlier uh chapter five definitely felt like a legends of tomorrow episode so i really dug that and i like that this kind of represents a celebration of the dc cw universe also really love the team-ups all the team-ups between the characters unlikely team-ups uh team-ups we haven't seen in a while really really dug that uh, I have to give a shout out to Brandon Ruth's Superman. Loved every second of it. I hope we get to see him more later on down the line. But if we don't, what we got from here was perfect. I also love the send-offs that we got for specific characters. Oliver, of course. But also, I gotta give it up to uh, the 90s Flash. Uh, John Wesley Shipp's original Flash that predates everybody who is involved in this uh, crossover in the main cast. Uh, loved his sacrifice. Loved the moment, the throwback to the original flash show um i also love that they consolidated everybody earth prime uh world of possibilities really really excited to see everybody how they're going to interact um how they're going to weave this now shared world between all the shows uh, i also really dug the changing of the guard you know this new era is uh kind of hard to step into and give viewers confidence i think one of the negatives when it came to endgame uh specifically i know i've referenced it a couple times but i think it it bears repeating here um the one negative I would say about Endgame, about Avengers Endgame, is that it really felt like the end, felt like the end of the story, and that, you know, as we go into uh, Phase 4 and beyond, it kind of feels like, okay, this is, you know, I don't know about this. Um, this definitely felt, didn't feel like that. It felt like the end of an era, but it really felt like the birth of a new one. It gave me confidence in what they're going to be uh, doing as they go forward. It really feels like, okay, we finished chapter one, here's chapter two, and I'm excited to see what chapter two brings. Uh, for the negatives, the cons, again, real quick, the break, I think, is the biggest negative. Um, the break between episode or the first half and the second half, really hurt it. I think the hype around Crisis was so huge when it first came out, and for at least a week following it, but this month break really hurt it. Um, and I kind of wish that they hadn't done that. I get why they did that for uh, purposes of the network and whatnot, but I really wish that they hadn't. Uh, I also think that, in general, the first half was stronger. Uh the first three episodes felt like they were really uh, moving forward. Uh, the amount of cameos was also a lot uh, bigger. They kind of made up for the lack of cameos with the huge cameo that was Ezra Miller's cameo in Chapter 4 and then showing everybody off uh, in the new multiverse, but I would have liked a bit stronger. Uh, I still think Episode 2 might be the strongest chapter out of all of them but i do think that the second uh the second half was weaker uh also uh speaking of the two halves uh oliver's double deaths is definitely a negative for me um 
his death, even though it really meant something when it first happened, uh, was kind of off-put by the fact that, oh, you know, this is the first episode, we're going to see him again. And the uh, second death that happens in uh, at the end of uh, Chapter 4 really kind of undercuts the sacrifice that he makes in the first episode. And I know that he goes on a full journey and everything, but I think that... Uh, we could have gotten a bigger, a better um, handling of that. Another thing that we could have gotten a better handling of is the Spectre. I do not think they handled the Spectre very well here. Uh, when Oliver was the Spectre, it was fine, but the whole random, like, shoehorned-in introduction of Jim Corrigan, oh, I'm the Spectre, his eyes glow, and it's like, okay, that's not good enough for me. The Spectre is a big character, and he deserved to get more time i think if they had had him be a character that uh, oliver was interacting with throughout the entirety of season eight alongside or maybe instead of the monitor i think it would have had a bigger impact oliver turning into the specter if you don't know who or what the specter is uh going into this his whole evolution in the specter really wouldn't have meant much to you uh i also i know it makes sense for the story itself but i just I don't think that Lex Luthor had a whole lot to contribute here. There were a couple things that he definitely did contribute to when it came to moving the plot forward, but I think it would have been more interesting to have the uh, to have Brandon Ruth's Superman be the paragon that we stuck with here. Um, I just the stuff that Lex Luthor does in this really is shown to be. Um, negligible because if he didn't didn't figure out how to use this machine to get them off the vanishing point which didn't work anyway ryan Choi would have done it um he doesn't do anything in the uh final chapter in chapter five um and in chapter four really all he does is provide a little bit of conflict between him and kara i would have much rather seen uh Brandon Ruth, Superman, kind of interacting with everybody. Uh, there's also some missed opportunities. I think they could have absolutely gotten uh, John Diggle or an alternate John Stewart uh, as Green Lantern in this. They really could have done that. Everything was queued up. Even his his Spartan costume now looks like a Greenland a leather Green Lantern costume with if you remove the helmet. Um, so I wish they could have done that. There were also missing characters that I think should have had time uh wally specifically i think is the biggest omission and the one that i really can't forgive them for not including him uh crest on infinite earths was a huge moment for wally west as a character in the comics and i think they really could have done a better job having him be part of that uh the legends as well i think having only uh sarah and ray be part of this really hurt it and you saw that with the um with the inclusion of the other legends in this final chapter also black siren like where the heck was she this whole time like that bothered me and then the uh the ending fights kind of were i would say a little bit anticlimactic i would have liked more time with them but uh overall i mean cons aside like this is probably live action comics at their finest and i'll be honest with that like i love some of the comic book films that have come out but um really like if you look at the entire scope of this five hour crossover it really is just comic storytelling brought into the live 
into live action form in the best way possible. Uh, the whole crossover opened up new possibilities. It gave me, like I said earlier, hope for the future going into this new era. What's going to happen with the DC sub CW verse. Um, all of the shows have been renewed. We're getting new shows as well. So getting to be able to see that is awesome. Uh, but overall, I think a lot of the uh, themes and a lot of the, uh, and I had to write this down, um, a lot of the crossover in general could be just shrunk down into this one line that Oliver gives Barry in, I want to say, chapter four, where he says, and I'm quoting here, there are few things more powerful in the universe than memory and connections. Um, I love that. I love that line, and it really it gets to the core of this entire crossover, uh, talking about the connection of all of these characters, these interpersonal relationships, uh, really just gives me hope that they are going to continue to knock these out of the park. You can say what you will about varying quality as the years have gone by when it comes to the DCCW verse, but I I still think it's one of the strongest parts of live-action comic book storytelling. And I think that the idea that this is going to continue just like the comics, these are going to keep going, this is never the end, as some comics like to uh, slap on the end of their big events, I think that the future is bright for this, uh, for this property and for DC Comics when it comes to their TV properties as a whole. So that is the Crisis on Infinite Earths officially. Uh, this is probably the longest weekly review I've ever done. This is absolutely a giant-sized weekly review, and um, it's bittersweet. I loved Crisis. I'm definitely going to be watching it again, watching all five episodes back-to-back -back at some point, uh, but I really dug this. Next week, we are going right back into Arrow. There's only two episodes left. I checked. I thought last or next week was going to be the final episode, but no! Next week is going to be the uh, backdoor pilot to Green Arrow and the Canaries, the uh, kind of spinoff show that's going to be coming later. And then after that, we'll be getting the final uh the final Arrow episode rounding out January. So that means in February we will be kicking off a brand new weekly review. I'll probably be putting up a poll uh, either this week or next week uh, just asking you guys what you want me to review. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff coming out. There's a bunch of stuff that's already going. Uh, Doctor Who, Harley Quinn. Um, I completely forgot that the Deathstroke cartoon is now up on CW Seed as well. So I'll be putting this uh, poll up, but feel free to let me know whether it's on social media at Pod or through email to geeksplain at gmail.com uh, what you want me to review next when it comes to the weekly review. So... Um, yeah, tune in next week for uh, the next, or the I guess the penultimate episode of Arrow. And uh, for now, let's hop on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop, on Comixology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like me to try out for this segment, feel free to request them at Geeksplain 
Geeksplained Pod. That's at Geeksplained P O D on Twitter and Instagram, or through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails to Geeksplained at gmail.com. But before we get into any of the books from this week, we gotta take a look back at last week with the Geeksplained Pick of the Week of last week. And there was a clear winner last week. For me, it, it was no contest, and it was Batman number 86, written by James Tynan IV with art by Tonius Daniel. Um, this book was great. It's a great new era for Batman when it comes to his comics. Um, I'm really interested in seeing what they do here. They set up a lot for this book while also um, playing off of some of the... Uh, the fallout from the Tom King run. I love the dual play with uh, Bruce and Selina working together on a case. And also, you know, Batman's still dealing with the loss of Alfred, which I am so surprised that they are sticking with. I'm, I'm glad that they're sticking with it, that there's consequences, but I'm really, really surprised that they're doing that. Uh, there's a great moment in this book where, um, Batman kind of absentmindedly is like Alfred do this this and this and there's this awkward silence and then Lucius Fox is like hey um this is awkward and Batman's like oh, fuck you're right Jesus so I like that they're doing that I'm hoping to see more Bat family characters as we go throughout James Tynan's run I'm sure there will be I have no doubt about that and overall I think it was a really strong opening chapter for him so that I would say um, I, I would say that Batman's in strong hands here but that's last week let's talk about this week this week we've got one two three four seven books for you both marvel and dc and we're gonna kick it off with jessica jones blind spot number one of six written written by kelly thompson with art by matia de Iulis. i uh probably mispronounced your name and i apologize but i'm always down for more jessica jones uh kelly thompson's also a great writer and i am looking forward to seeing what they do with this book uh she's kind of been on the back burner recently i think with the cancellation of her show um marvel and i guess comics in general really doesn't give a huge focus on you unless you've got some other kind of uh cross genre appeal but i'm glad that she's getting a series because she is an incredible character who really deserves it so let's jump into the synopsis here jessica jones was once the costumed superhero known as jewel she sucked at it now she's a private investigator at her own firm alias investigations she sucks less at that with the purple man gone, her relationship with her husband Luke Cage and their daughter Danielle is better than ever. But her past always comes knocking, and when a woman whose case she fumbled winds up dead on her office floor, Jessica goes from private investigator to prime suspect. Can she find the real killer and clear her name? The critically acclaimed Marvel Digital original series by Kelly Thompson and Mattia De Iulis, released for the first time as a print miniseries. So this is also, um, I guess, part of the uh, reissues of these Marvel Digital series. Uh, now that I think about it, I do remember when this was coming out, and um, I remember it being a good book. 
Uh, it's kind of hard to get your hands on these uh, digital series when they're coming out unless you have like a membership or a subscription. So I'm glad that this is being printed and we're going to be able to get this collected kind of in the same way that Superman Up in the Sky and Batman Universe were. Next up, we have Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 7 of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. Uh, this this book is just so good. It's been so good so far, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do with this. Um, let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The Doctor will see you now, Jimmy. And you, Jimmy. And you, and you, and you too, Jimmy. How can there be five different Jimmys, and how will our Jimmy handle the other four Jimmys together without bursting into smithereens? Well, to answer that, Jimmy will first have to tell us about your mother. And what about your brother Jamie and sister Janie? Ah, yes, but how does that make you feel, Jimmy? So it's a confusing synopsis just to read, um, but again, this book has been so good so far, and even with the... Uh, less than clear synopsis i'm sure the book is going to be just a laugh riot it, it really has been fantastic next up we have venom the end number one written by adam warren with art by chamba um this is continuing the uh the end line that has been kind of going through marvel right now uh, i had a really strong start with uh, miles morales the end last week but I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here, especially with uh, Venom hype at all-time high right now when it comes to comics. Donny Cates has been just absolutely destroying on the Venom book and through his um, his crossovers like Absolute Carnage. So I'm surprised they don't have him on this book, but um, we'll just have to see exactly what happens here. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The final Venom story. The alien symbiote who bonded with Eddie Brock has been through a lot, but not nearly as much as he has coming. In a tale that literally spans over a trillion years, Venom travels the length of space and time as the last defender of life in the universe. So that's an interesting role for him to be in. Um... We'll just have to see exactly what they do with this character. Next up, we have Legion of Superheroes, number three, written by Brian Michael Bendis with art by Ryan Sook. Uh, the first two issues have been really good, and this issue is promising um, to be even better. What do I mean? Let's jump into the synopsis and find out. You knew there was no way John Kent was going to leave his best friend behind. Welcome to the future, Damian Wayne. This is such a terrible idea. Also, meet the new Legionnaires as they head to a secret undercover mission on the first man-made planet, Planet Gotham. Every page of this new DC epic plants seeds and ideas that will blast out across the DC universe for months to come. All this, and Monster Boy is on the loose. So... I think the uh, the idea of Monster Boy, of course, is just, it's five stars. Half is a must-pick-up. But um, I like that they're bringing Damien in. We're finally going to get some more Super Sons action. I still think that it would be much more interesting if he was still 11-year-old John Kent. But that's fine! It's fine. The book's been good so far, and I'm looking forward to seeing... Uh, exactly how Damien shakes up the dynamic that they've set up over the 
uh, previous two issues. Next up, we have another number one, that being Iron Man 2020, number one of six, written by Dan Slott with art by Pete Woods. Um, this is continuing his uh, his new run, Dan Slott's, that is, on Iron Man and kind of, I guess, paying off the promise from the original Iron Man 2020 book back in the 80s. And uh, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. Arno, Arno Stark, I think, is a great, uh, great character that doesn't get enough play. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in this book. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. The future is now. Artificial intelligence presents a clear and present danger to humanity and must be brought to heel. The Robot Rebellion battles for the establishment of robot rights. And Arno Stark is Iron Man. Plus, Pete Wood's main cover art will feature a fifth color fluorescent ink treatment. So they're going all in on the 80s throwbacks, and uh, I'm down for it. So we'll see what Dan Slott has in store for Iron Man, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Next up, the book that, of course, I say it every time it comes up, you need to buy, please buy this book, is Flash Forward number 5 of 6, written by Scott Lumdell with art by Brett Booth. Um, what can I say? You, you, need to, you need to pick up this book. You have to pick up this book, guys. You do. I, it's it's your homework. It is your. It's the only thing I ask of you whenever this comes up. You have to pick up this book. Um, the book's been good. Just besides the fact that I need you to pick up this book, um, the book's been good. It's a great read. The art is fine. I wish that uh, Doc Shaner was doing the interiors as well as the cover, but I'll take Doc Shaner uh, drawing Wally West where I can get him. And overall, I'm. I think they're telling a really interesting story when it comes to Wally West's journey here. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. Wally West has gotten to the heart of his mission to save the multiverse, and the heart he found was his own. When it's discovered that the dark multiversal world that's threatening all of existence is the world in which Wally's children are alive, our hero must overcome his greatest fears, regrets, and anger to do what's right. But what's right is the hardest thing anyone could ever imagine doing, letting go. Whew. Flash synopsis. Um, I think that's really interesting. Uh, we did see at the end of last issue, spoilers, that um, he was reunited with his kids, uh, Iris and Jay. I, I just know that by the end of this book, he's going to lose those kids, and it is going to make me incredibly sad. But I am interested to see, and I am waiting with bated breath to see how this story concludes. We've got one more issue after this, so um, again... Please pick this book up. But the big book of the week besides Flash Forward, of course, for me is Green Lantern Legacy. We talked about this in my uh, in our Geeksplain 2020 forecast. It's one of my most anticipated books, and it's a book that I think you, uh, you are going to enjoy. I've heard a lot of good things, and I'm looking forward to picking this up. This is written by Min Lee with art by Andy Tong, and uh, let's go ahead and just jump into the synopsis. 12-year-old Tai Pham lives in the apartment above his grandmother's store, where his bedroom is crammed with sketch pads and comic books. But not even his most imaginative drawings could compare to the colorful adventure he's about to embark on. 
When Tai inherits his grandmother's jade ring, he soon finds out it's more than it appears. Suddenly, he's being inducted into a group of space cops known as the Green Lanterns. Meanwhile, his neighborhood is being overrun by some racist bullies, and every time he puts pen to paper, he's forced to realize that he might not be creative enough or strong enough to uphold the legacy of his ba. Now, Tai must decide what kind of hero he wants to be. Will he learn to soar above his insecurities, or will the past keep him grounded? From award-winning author Min Lee and artist Andy Tong comes the tale of a brand new hero, the latest in the Green Lantern lineage. So, with this, along with Superman Smashes the Clan, uh, Asian storytelling is in good hands. I'm a big fan of this. Uh, it's going to be a great story. It is going to be a little bit pricier because you're essentially uh, buying the entire story it's a big one shot but it is definitely going to be worth your time and i'm really looking forward to picking it up on wednesday so that does it for this week's comics countdown to recap we have jessica jones blind spot number one of six superman's pal jimmy olsen number seven of twelve venom the end number one legion of superheroes number three iron man 2020 number one of six flash forward number five of six and green lantern legacy so if i missed any books feel free to let me know uh through social media or through email i love discovering new books i was actually uh recommended a couple books this past week that i'm looking forward to picking up so i will definitely be checking those out and if you pick up any books this week make it flash forward and make it green lantern legacy and that is going to do it for this week's episode. A long episode, a big episode, an important episode. Uh, just talking about some of the stuff that I love. Superman, Lois, and Clark, one of my favorite Superman stories. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, the enormous amount of news that we got. And talking about some comics that I'm really excited about. Go pick up Flash Forward number five. Um, I... I just, I'm really excited about all the stuff that's coming. 2020 is going to be a really big year. Um, I've got some great stuff in the pipeline coming up. Uh, we are in episode 91, which means we are officially on the march to episode 100, as well as our um, our two-year anniversary. So I'm really excited about it. Uh, this has just been a fantastic fantastic start to 2020 and i'm glad that i was finally able to get an episode out this year so far where i'm not sick <laughs> so um feel free to let me know if you have thoughts feelings opinions on anything that we talked about today also if you liked what you heard, please feel free to give us a uh, rating and review, especially on iTunes. It definitely helps us out um, getting us out there and on the radar of listeners just like you. So um, it really does help us out, and I love having these conversations, these discussions. Um, this episode, this the main course of this episode, though I guess it's kind of a, a double main event with the uh, weekly review, 
was decided by you guys. So uh, thank you very much for participating in those polls. Uh, I look forward to having more interactions with you guys and allowing uh, you guys to have more of an input. This is a podcast uh, by the geeks and for the geeks. So uh, tune in next week as we continue on in our march to episode 100. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>